Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. Sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn's Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. We lost Goodell right when he needed him. Oh, no. Come on, baby. Hey, welcome to Penn's Sunday School. This is <laughs> Penn Gillette. We are all broadcasting from our separate homes all over Las Vegas. And our guest today is Chris Matheson, who wrote all the Bill and Ted stuff. And he also wrote a lot of great books about God. Now, here he is preaching love. Me. I covered Goodell's part. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? We hope that uh, Goudeau will pop in eventually. And if uh, Ready Rich wants, he can do the, uh, he can do the opening again with, uh, with Goudeau doing that. So how's Bill and Ted doing in this uh, COVID world? I, I think it's doing pretty good. I mean, box office numbers don't really mean very much because we're not really in theaters. We're more on video on demand and and I don't I think those numbers are a little slower to come in but it seems like people are liking it it seems like the reviews were better than I expected I kind of because Bill and Ted movies historically have gotten hammered like they really kind of hated us at first and and so yeah you know it's it was a pleasant surprise people seem to like it well we watched it with uh, our whole family who's in lockdown mm -hmm. which is my mother-in-law my wife and two teenagers uh, 14 and 15, yeah. and everybody sat through the whole movie, which is not true, by the way, of Star Wars, which when I thought I've always hated Star Wars, always, but I thought it was unfair to my children to not let them watch it. So we watched the first one, which is actually the third one, fourth, however fourth that works, one. fourth one. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they started a long time ago in a distant galaxy, whatever that is. And my son said, what are they going to do? Text the whole goddamn movie to us? <laughs> <laughs> and he was gone. That's a good one. He was out. Yeah. That's well, he it. actually the made it. at the beginning. He made it. He made it through another 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> That's and then he was out. 
And the garbage compactor, my daughter left. She said, I, I don't know what I'm watching. I'm going to get out of here. And then I was sitting there watching it alone going, this is a movie that I don't like. And now I'm watching it alone. So when I say that all five of us made it through, you should be going woohoo, woohoo. Woohoo. Yeah, I'm happy. So I'm just curious. Did you not like Star Wars in 1977? Like when it first came out, did you not like it? I really didn't like it. But remember, I'm older than you. Not much. So, so when it came out, I was like 23. Yeah. Which has to be the worst age for that movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can see how it could look pretty, pretty lame. And I said, you know, what is this? It's the Wizard of Oz yeah. with religion. Yeah. You know, trust the force. Yeah. And, and you know, we're killing all these. The, the, the morality was wrong. The philosophy was wrong. Yeah. The special effects were shitty. <laughs> it's a takedown <laughs> of the original Star Wars movies. No, I did not. And then I kept watching a few more of them because I said, well, you know, maybe they'll yeah. get uh, – and I've told this story before, but um, George Lucas comes to see our show and comes backstage. Yeah. And we sit there going, oh, well, American Graffiti, huh? That was something. <laughs> well, that is a good one. What, did you not like Indiana Jones either? Well, I liked that when it came out and then it faded on. Yeah. But also Indiana Jones was more Spielberg. Oh, I bet it means – more to him, honestly, for somebody to love American Graffiti. Because American Graffiti is more personal, and it is it is better. It's it's a great, great film. But it's also funny that, um, you know, uh, he doesn't get asked questions about Star Wars by us. Yeah, right. Everybody in the world wants to talk to him about Star Wars, and then you're like, so let's talk about American Graffiti. He also said, you know, like, oh, I just finished up a script for a new uh, new Star Wars thing. We went, great. How'd that go? Cool, man. But not trying to not trying to pump them at all. So uh the what was the original pitch for Bill and Ted? Well, it wasn't really a pitch. It was they were just characters that uh, Ed Solomon and I made up. We were like right out of college and we just liked we liked comedy and so we got together with other friends and we would just do uh improv games. Not for an audience, just we rented a little theater and we would just do improv. And one night, the idea was these two teenage boys who don't know anything about history studying for history. And he played one of the boys, and I played the other boy, and we just started talking to each other, at kind of as Bill and Ted, pretty quickly. And we just, um, we liked them. They were great. They, they just, that voice, that energy, that way of looking at the world, we, we liked them instantly. And uh, we just kind of played with them for about a year before we did any uh, movie thing at all, which is pretty interesting because we were both, you know, sort of young, aspiring screenwriters. But we just would write letters back and forth. We'd have phone conversations as Bill and Ted. And we got to know them. We got to just kind of feel them. And then at a certain point, we thought, well, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, maybe we could put them in a movie. And then we... so Which one were you? Uh, you know, we were both both. Okay. Like when we would write, we would just go back and forth. It would just be sort of like bang, 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 Bill Ted, Bill Ted. And then we'd go to the top of the page and go, Bill Ted, Bill Ted. They were, they were very, now they're different because once, once Alex and Keanu started playing them, of course, they, they really differentiated. But in, in our minds, they were just kind of the same guy at first. And it's never been the case that like, you know, I play Ted and Ed plays Bill or anything, anything like that. We both kind of do both. Um, but, um, yeah, so we ended up writing it on spec, 
back in 1984. And uh, we didn't, we didn't, if we tried to pitch it, you know, I have no idea. I, I think the, we did end up trying to, we had to pitch the second one because the second one, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, was owned by uh, the, the studio that they paid for it. So, and they paid us to write it. So we did have to pitch essentially Bill and Ted get killed by evil versions of themselves and go to hell. And that was, yeah, that was not easy. That was a little difficult to pitch. It was Bill and Ted was your first movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now this is something uh, that I want to talk to you about really for personal reasons. You know, um, uh, I had no contact with show business uh, growing up. None. Uh, first person I met in show business was me. No idea. You know, my dad was a jail guard. You know, I lived in a rural area. Yeah. And um, my children are growing up knowing personally everybody on every billboard in Vegas. Right. You know, and uh, since your dad was, you know, hardcore important writer and fabulous writer. Yeah. What was it like going into show business knowing what show business was like? Because if I'd have known, I think I would have understood it was too hard and said, fuck it. But you you knew. I mean, your father had certainly been fucked over every way possible in show business. And then you were coming along. What was that like? Well, he told he told me not to do it. He said, don't do it. You know, if you can do anything else, don't don't do it. This is, <laughs> this is really a hard line of work. This is because you're a little like Jacob Dylan. You know, you are. Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, how do you follow that act? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty good act this guy had. And uh, I didn't want to for uh, a, a long time. And because for that very reason, like, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, try to compete with my dad because my dad's this sort of legendary figure who I think is tremendous. And you automatically lose. Yeah, right. I, As Jacob Dylan said, if I compete against my dad, I just lose. <laughs> that's basically true. As a starting point, you know, it's over. The game's, <laughs> game's over before the first pitch is thrown, you know. Um, but then, uh, you know, I liked comedy. I just really liked comedy. I really gravitated to comedy. And if you really, really like comedy, what are you going to do, right? You're either going to perform it. And I didn't, I didn't have the personality or the ability, nothing like the ability to perform it, or you're going to write it down. And once this, and so I just started um, writing it down in terms of the personal thing, what it's like to be, a, I mean, there's a big difference between, I would say you and my dad, you know, I mean, you're kind of like a, a pretty well-known celebrity in a lot of ways that people would recognize. Nobody recognized my dad. Nobody knew who my dad was, you know, I mean, he was really anonymous and, um, it, it was, uh, I guess what I would say it did do on a positive, on the positive side is whatever mystique and glamor there would be for other people in showbiz. No, no, I didn't feel any of that. To me, it was just, it's dad's job. You know, it's just like, this is, it's, it's a line of work and dad goes and he sits in his office for eight hours a day and he writes and that's what pays the bills and, and it, and it's a, uh, it's a job. And so all the Hollywood of it 
didn't have much of an effect on me. Now, did it, I know that Hollywood has a very short attention span. Did that open a lot of doors for you, the name, or did people? Um, probably a few. I mean, I was able to, you know, because of my dad's influence, I was able to get it into certain people's hands early on. Mm -hmm. That is true. Um, those people didn't like it. So it ended up, <laughs> <laughs> ended up not helping me. You know, I mean, it's like I got it there and then they, you know, they didn't dig it. I remember one person, one guy saying, one agent saying to me, I don't know what you even think you're doing. This is like comedy from another planet or something. I don't even understand <laughs> the jokes yep. you're, I don't even think they're bad jokes exactly. I just don't even understand the jokes you're making. So, uh, yeah. In this case, in this case, it was no notes, but uh, in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, no notes. <laughs> I have nothing to say to you. Now, part of your style is subverting the formula that your father invented. Um, I would say, in some ways, that is that is very true. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking the other. I don't know if you guys are familiar with. Uh, uh, a book or a movie he did called what dreams may come. It's an after it's a life after death one. Robin Williams was in the movie version of it. And, and um, I didn't like consciously do this at all, but I, I was thinking not that long ago that like Bill and Ted's bogus journey is an afterlife story. And it's like some of the same scenes just sort of flipped on their head, you know, just comedicized right. if that's a, a word or absurdized or something like that. Yeah. What were your favorite, uh, what, what movies, what movie were you trying to make with Bill and Ted? Or did you really realize how different it was? It was very different. When that came out, it was unlike, you know, a little bit like the Velvet Underground in that you, everything sounds like it afterwards. So you think, well, it's not that, it's not that big a deal. But at the time, it was a very big deal. What, what? Uh, Ed and I both, loved, before we met, when we were both, you know, in, in high school, when we were both 14, 15, 16, we were both enormously influenced by um, two movies, Blazing Saddles and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I would say those two movies were, had just huge, a huge impact on me. I know, I know Blazing Saddles, I just, uh, I was 15 years old when it came out in 1974. And I just couldn't get enough of it, you know? I just kept paying, I had, not only did I keep paying to go see it, I would, I would have to get somebody to take me to see it because I was only 15 years old and it was rated R. And I would just keep dragging different people because I loved it so much because it so blew my mind with the kind of comedy it was making. I'd never seen anything like it. I thought it was just shocking and uh, absurd and, and really wonderful. And then Holy Grail came out a year later. And that whatever my, uh, uh, Blazing Saddles hadn't, you know, whatever mind I had left that hadn't been blown, you know, uh, Holy Grail did it. And, and uh, so for me, those have always been like the two kind of touchstones for what's funny. Like between those two movies, Jesus Christ, man, they get out a lot of what's funny. <laughs> well, really you, you managed to find the tone of those movies, but you added a kindness to your characters that none of them had had before. And it's really beautiful to watch. You know, it's a really nice thing. Thank you. What kills me about that is that you really, really like Bill and Ted. 
And yeah. anyone else writing that movie would have not just loved them. We did. You know, we liked him, as I said, from the first night we made him up, we liked playing him and we liked him so much that we went out to a coffee shop. If anybody, you know, was born and raised in L.A., there used to be a coffee shop called Ships in Westwood. Mm-hmm. And um, we went to Ships uh, after. And for a couple hours, we just were talking as Bill and Ted. Who are their parents? <laughs> What's their inner life? What's the, what do they want? What are they scared? Who are these guys? And we really, really liked him. And we, and we always tried to write him from the inside. And I will say, I don't have any, I, nobody's ever going to, you could put a gun to my head and I won't say anything bad about Python or Blazing Saddles because I adore them. But they are lacking warmth, I would say. Well, uh, Holy Grail is lacking warmth, pretty much flat out, with the possible exception of Michael Palin, who just naturally brings warmth to everything he does because he's a real minchy kind of guy, I think. But it's cold. It's pretty chilly. Blazing Saddles has a bit in the friendship between uh, Cleavon Little and and, and uh, Gene Wilder. They're, they're, well, that's but that's just Gene Wilder. That is pretty much just Gene Wilder. I mean, bring it. I mean, if you if you look at the producers, if you see the difference between the um, uh, the original movie and the play, yeah, it's that that Mel Brooks doesn't seem to have any of the kind of love. And gentleness and goodwill—that is everything in the original movie to me. I mean, everything in the original movie is Gene Wilder, and when that was taken out for the Broadway show, I thought there was nothing left. You know, I agree with you. I didn't like the Broadway show, and I thought it was yeah. a very chilly experience for me. And I think you're right. I think Wilder's natural humanity—you know—he just has that. Uh, it's like Bill Murray. You know, there's parts of Gene Wilder that just do not get lost in a character in a very, very good way. Yeah. There's just this gentle love of the world that's always there. And it's absolutely true. The Pythons um, are completely intellectual. They are. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite brilliant, and they're very, very silly. They're very silly. Like for a kid who was very inhibited, right? Because I'd been a very um, – I was a very overweight kid. You know, your book really resonated with me because I was I was a very uh, overweight kid for a long time. And uh, so because I was overweight as a teenager, I was very self-conscious. I was very ill at ease. I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. And so seeing Python, where it's just like, fuck, man, <laughs> these guys will do anything. These guys will do anything. And I adored that. And I still do. I still think it's wonderful. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it, it tends to be a chilly, rather intellectual experience. And they also were that way with each other. Yeah, um, right. It's weird. Did you watch that documentary about them on Netflix? <laughs> it's yeah, fascinating because yeah. you realize none of these guys like each other. It's crazy. No, yeah, they're not friends. They are not friends. They are business associates. <laughs> I know. I know uh, a few of them. Yeah. And. Uh, it is amazing how each one of them did the whole show by themselves. It's wild. <laughs> and they pretty much talk shit about each other. I think that Palin and Terry Jones kind of like each other. You get, you get some affection between them a little bit here and there. But other than that, like Cleese talking about Chapman, his dead ex-partner who he co-wrote with, and he's just like – Damn, man, you're cold, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it is just amazing. And uh, and they all have not only 
do they have their cold takes on the others, but they're also very aware what the others think of them. Yeah, they are. You know, when you're hanging out with Eric Idle, Eric just says, oh, yeah, I'm the dumb guy. I'm the dumb guy, but they don't want me in the sketches because I'm still funny, but I'm the dumb one. <laughs> yeah, it's really right. There's this pitched competition between them, and the only one who sort of semi seems to escape it is Palin a little bit because they all yeah. seem to like Mike for whatever reason. Yeah. Mike seems very likable, I guess, and he's, he's funny. But yeah, it's it. So it does lead to this real coldness, and um, you know, you watch him now, and uh, whatever. It's it is what it is. It's the seventies, but um, the sexual politics of Python is not so good. It's it's, <laughs> it's pretty archaic. But they were, you know, they were they were in their time. Yeah, yeah, it's not right. And those that weren't in their time, we don't go back and judge because they're unknown. <laughs> yeah, I guess I would just say like, there's no Madeline Kahn. You know, right. like in Blazing the Madeline Kahn, as a blowout, brilliant performance at yeah. the center of some great strength. Yeah, and there's no, there is no equivalent to that. Yeah, they never even, make any room for that. Not even lip service. To not that. even lip service. It's not Carol Carol Cal- Cleveland parading around in a little bikini, and you know, whatever. It's 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 Benny no. Hill level. If there was an awesome female part, they played. They yeah, played. yeah, that's right. That's exactly- <laughs> they hired someone when they needed tits. That's exactly right. Not if they needed ass. <laughs> yeah, that, and that's it. That, that's the extent of it. Right? You're right. If there's a good female role, they're going to go, well, shit, we're playing that. It's <laughs> totally true. I would say the one the one other thing that I would say just sealed the deal for me, and I'd be interested whether, whether you had a response to this, too. But so I'm like my, I would say my comedic inner life is just getting built by these things. And then I remember not long after Holy Grail, seeing Andy Kaufman. Well, yeah. And seeing Andy Kaufman, and it was on that first SNL, it's the very first episode of SNL ever. Holy shit, that's good comedy karma, you know? And I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I remember just kind of sitting, I'm like 16 or something. And like, what the fuck is this guy even doing you know it's the mighty mouse thing and i'm like yeah i i but i'm laughing really really hard this is the worst thing i've ever seen and it's the most brilliantly funny so that was amazing yeah teller and i saw andy kaufman uh, on saturday night live yeah and teller said uh okay the definition of comedy now includes us damn really yeah (laughs) damn teller was never happy with us being called comedians. Right. He just said, you know, we're not really doing jokes. We don't do it that often. We're just kind of doing weird shit that people laugh at. And then Teller said, okay, so now America's decided anything we don't have another label for, we call comedy. That's very good for us because now we can be comedians. That's fantastic. And then Brother Theodore. And then Brother Theodore. Well, Brother Theodore was before that. I have a Brother Theodore. Okay, you asked about growing up in in the business. (laughs) My dad knew Brother Theodore. Oh, nice. Brother Theodore, this is awesome. I hadn't remembered this for a while. Brother Theodore a couple of times put me to bed. I'm not fucking kidding. Brother Theodore. And you slept? And you slept? <laughs> and how, why my parents thought this was a good idea, I have no clue. But I remember being in my bed and Brother Theodore sitting there and him, him just staring at me, not saying a word with just this look on his face. 
just staring, and I'm howling with laughter. Like I'm, I'm laughing so hard, I'm gonna pee. I'm laughing, I'm like six or so, five, six. And I'm howling with laughter. And this guy's just, and I don't know who he is. You know, he's just this strange man that's over. And oh my God, it was funny. Yeah, well, you know, it's like. Uh... <laughs> I can't imagine Brother Theater putting you to sleep. I know, it just sounds. Yeah, it's like. I've got to be the only, you know, person on earth. You know, you, it's like talking to Jesse Dillon. And he says, you know, what's your favorite Beatle? And he says George Harrison, because when he babysat, he let us stay up the latest. <laughs> and you go, you know, that's just not the way we talk about favorite Beatles. <laughs> right. That's not how most no. people evaluate the Beatles. Like, who's so, the best baby? So with you, with you, you know, uh, Brother Theodore, we mentioned, is a touchstone of, uh, of comedy and show business. And you say, he made me laugh when he put me to bed at six. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Weird, right? Yeah. I don't have a million of those stories like Jesse Dillon would have, but I have that one. So that's a good one. Yes. So uh, that's a good one. So, Brother Theodore, you were alone in a house with Brother Theodore as a child. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> that would explain certain things, actually. Uh, no, I would think that there was like a dinner party or something. And why the hell? Unless I unless I asked, because I thought he was so funny. I mean, it's not imp- – and I did love laughing because I did. I was just that kid. I was so scared, I think, that I just wanted to laugh. And uh, maybe I asked if he would. I don't know. But it happened a couple of times, and my God, I held with laughter. <laughs> and did you see later, as you got older, did you see Brother Theodore work? Did you see him do a show? Yeah. And then I, and then I, I, and then I kind of put it together, because I was just a little kid. Like, here's this strange man who's – unbelievably funny without because he made me so uncomfortable right it was like he, all he, he would just sit and stare at me you know that's it he did not say a word and then finally just get up and leave that's it he wouldn't say he just stare at me with this dour kind of expression when i uh when i hitchhiked to new york city when i was 18 and got to new york city my very first time there uh homeless with no place to live and a little bit of money that I, that I had saved up from working an ice cream truck. In the first week I was there, I saw Lemmings with Belushi, Chevy Chase, wow. all those guys. Wow. I saw Lemmings, Brother Theodore, and Gilbert Gottfried in the first week. So New York seemed okay to me. Seemed like there was a lot going on. You're kind of done at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, you can shape a sense of humor off that. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> And, you know, Gilbert's my age, so was Gilbert just doing crazy shit at the improv? Yeah. Or the com- wherever it was. Yeah. And it was Brother Theodore in the village, and it was uh, all the Saturday Night Live guys at the uh, village gate doing lemmings. Yeah, it's amazing when you're at certain – so you were what? You were a teenager? You were like 19? 18. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when you're at that age, you're just so – and you are interested in comedy. You're just so wide open to the ideas and, and possibilities and, and it can be very uh, like mind expanding. Yeah. But not, you know, I was 18 and laughing hysterically at brother Theodore. I wasn't six in my bed. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought of that for a long, long time. That's weird, yeah, but that is probably fun. a sort of seminal event in my life. Was your, was your father very friendly with brother Theodore? Yeah. You know, they, they must've, uh, I mean, I also met briefly Buster Keaton because my dad was oh, nice. was going to do a Twilight Zone with him, I think. Yeah. And so I, we went over to Buster Keaton's house in, like, I don't know, it was like in, in, 
Van Nuys or something. It was a very mm-hmm. modest kind of house. But he had like this unbelievable like uh, train, uh, you know, mo- train set that went around the property. And it was really magical from a kid's standpoint. Um, I think he was probably going to work with Brother Theodore probably on a Twilight Zone. But I don't know that that ever happened. Um, I don't know what they're working with. It must have been work because my dad didn't just hang with people for any reason. My dad essentially had no friends. You know, he just, <laughs> it was all work, only work. Um, so I have Except to- for the troll on the, uh, on the wing of the plane. <laughs> yeah. 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 Basically. Um, yeah. Which he wasn't happy with, by the way, he didn't like the troll on the thing. Uh, on the- he didn't. No, he thought it was stupid looking. He wanted, what he wanted was a feral, looking human guy a guy who's like looks burned and kind of, did you see uh did you see the the twin peaks uh uh re, you know uh, i didn't see the new one no well did any of you guys see that that when he brought it back mm-hmm. brought back okay there's this guy who just looks burned and charred and he's terrifying and i think that's kind of what my dad wanted and he thought he looked like a teddy bear so he wasn't happy <laughs> it does look kind of like a teddy bear but it's still good we, we haven't even got to your God book, so I'm going to do a few of these uh, ads now. So if you just bear with me, yeah. I'm going to talk about some other stuff. I'm going to talk about three other things, and I'm going to come back to talking about you. Um, <laughs> as more places reopen and we safely enjoy summer, quality sleep is more important than ever. Not only is a natural immunity booster, it also helps with energy and recovery. Uh, sleep number president and CEO Shelly Ibach uh, connected virtually with Katie Couric. Sleep number Twitter. And sleep prepares you for more balanced emotionally. Uh, people begin to realize how important sleep is. I've known that for a very long time. People generally aim for seven to eight hours of sleep per night. I've been sleeping well during the lockdown. So if you're not, maybe it's my sleep number bed. Uh, establish a sleep routine, going to bed, waking up at similar times, walk away from screen time, listen to calm music, transition, prepare for sleep. I was listening last night to Steppenwolf at unbelievable volumes as I went to sleep. Uh, create a peaceful place for sleep. Ambient noise can be helpful if you find the right kind. Steppenwolf. Don't drink caffeine past 3 p.m. I don't drink it at all. Keep your bedroom at a cool temperature. I do that. Optimum sleep temperature in the low to mid-60s. Anyway, what I love about the uh, sleep number bed is two different firmnesses. My wife and I can sleep on different mattresses while sleeping in the same bed. It also keeps track of everything. It's a really, really good thing. And uh, I've been sleeping with my bed really, really firm during the lockdown so that I can uh, suffer at a different level, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> come in during the biggest sale of the year when all the beds are on sale for a limited time. Save 50% off on Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed. Shop uh, your way at a Sleep Number store online at sleepnumber.com slash or by chat. Sleep Q. No one was there Sleepy with me. No. Sleepy Q. One more time. Sleepy Q. We can't. The technology does not allow us to do a good job on that. Um, now, there's this thing, uh, Lucy Nicotine Gum. It's a company founded by a uh, Caltech scientist and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that come in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. I tried the wintergreen. 
I don't like nicotine, so I spit it out right away. But I tasted it, and it was good. Uh, it's 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes. Unplug your vape. Throw out your dip and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription of Lucy comes directly to your door every month. It's so simple. You don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. For Penn Sunday School listeners, go to lucy.co. That's not com. That's .co. Lucy.co. And use promo code Penn to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. So uh, I'll start to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy.co. Lucy.co. And be sure to use that promo code Penn. Now, this is something you can talk about here, Matt. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. <laughs> Winning season means survivor, super contest, and squares. My bookie. Winning season means hitting all your parlays and props with feet up, watching your team trounce their rivals. Rejoice. It's time to celebrate the NFL season. Invest in your intuition. Use promo code PEN. And double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. It's simple. Make your picks. Win big. Collect your cash. MyBookie.ag. MyBookie.ag. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E dot A-G. Use promo code P-E-N-N. To double your first deposit, your winning season begins today only at my bookie. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. So we're back to uh, Chris now. Now, when did you first see uh, Keanu and Alex do Bill and Ted? You mean originally, back in the day? I mean, did you see the, um, were you involved in the auditions at all or any of that? I believe they sent us like VHS tapes back in the day mm -hmm. and, and in some... You know, probably not much giving a shit what we thought sort of way they sent them to us. Like, well, you guys have any, have any thoughts? I remember seeing uh, tapes of a bunch of different people, and I would like to think that I quickly recognized that these were the two guys, but I, I, I don't know. It's a long time ago. <laughs> it was pretty obvious once we got on the set. Like, oh, yeah. So they left the writers on the set? Yeah, we were there the whole time, <laughs> actually. It's it's kind of the director's call, but the director, Steve Herrick, was, uh, yeah, he, he just sort of, I don't know that he wanted us there. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Why would he, really? Uh, um, but he was cool with it, and we were pretty much there the whole time. And whether we added anything by our presence, I, I sincerely doubt it. But it was it was fun to be there. and How close was the script to uh, what you wrote? what was shot it was close you know it was it was it was really close that was an earlier um time in comedy making 
Um, as we got into the 90s and the early 2000s, more of the model for comedy making is kind of uh, improvise a bunch of stuff. It's the Apatow model. It's the... Adam McKay talks a lot about that a lot. And he actually says, and he's the only one I know who credits it openly in interviews, but he talks about it being the Avid era. Once yeah. Avid editing came around and you didn't have to keep each ad lib clipped in an envelope and taped to a wall, <laughs> um, that it was suddenly a lot easier to keep track of ad libbing yeah. and change the way comedy was created on set completely. Yeah, I think that's really true. Uh, you could just, and also, like, you don't have to change film roles, you know, as years go by. You can just let it roll, just let it roll. And you get really, really funny people and you get somebody as good as Adam McKay at yeah. running well, you're going to get amazingly funny things. I'm a huge, huge fan of those movies that he made with Will Ferrell. On the other hand, you get a bunch of shit, you know, because you get people <laughs> just like, from a writer's standpoint, you get a bunch of people just like, well, you know, I worked pretty hard on this for a couple of years. I guess you're just going to make stuff up on the spot and think it's better and funnier. And that's pretty, um, that's pretty irritating. It takes a very, very talented person like McKay to pull it off, in my opinion. Definitely. And I think you even talk, you even talk about your process of improvising back in the day. Like you were doing the exercises that actors do later on camera. You were doing off camera in your coffee shop. And you were getting to separate the wheat from the chaff in that moment and put it on the page because it had to be that way in the process. But I think it's so important. Yeah. I mean, in some that. ways, I think you're right. There, there, there has to be, you know, improv built in because you're just making stuff up you're figuring it out you're just you know you're trying stuff out what works what doesn't and um so anyway back in those days it was more more stick to the script and keanu is certainly an actor who who likes to stick to the script and so it was yeah it, it was pretty close all three of them have been actually not not big improv movies some and some really funny ones by the way i should say no, that's what I was going to say is that it's, it's, it's a skill set that isn't respected. Like to be able to make it seem like you're improvising while you're sticking to this, exactly to the script is a much cooler feat. Acting. <laughs> it turns out it's acting. <laughs> um, I think so. And I think a lot of um, improvising on the set will deteriorate pretty quickly into kind of just, you know, rather broad, obvious jokes that are just not, they're just the first ones. They're the low hanging fruit jokes and they're, they're never really any good. But they also don't, you lose, you lose the cohesiveness of the whole, the whole thing. That's what drives me crazy about the stuff that's obviously improved on the set is you can't do the same kinds of callbacks and referential stuff. And you can't really build the same way. You'll get a very funny scene but you don't get as, as... Yeah, it's microscopic instead of macroscopic. Like, yeah. like, like in and in of itself, you're funny in that moment, but are you making the whole piece funny? And I'm friend, I came up in the UCB in the 90s and the 2000s. And it is my friends that are making both the good and bad versions of what we're talking about. Um, right, you know exactly the, the inside. But, but the whole point of, you know, when the, the, the irony of it is that, you know, the whole point of going from short form improv to this long form open improv is was to get away from being self-celebratory. And now what you describe in this type of filmmaking is you're asking the audience to celebrate the person for being Robin Williams like instead of actually liking the movie. And it's it, the only way you can laugh is if you're breaking the fourth wall. And so... I think what's so important is that you had guys who stuck to the script. You put all the comedy on the page and we're never once thinking about Alex and Keanu when we're watching these movies. We're just watching these two high school kids. 
That's good. I mean, I, I'm glad. That's that's nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's they're both valid types of comedy making for sure. And I couldn't like uh, Anchorman and Talladega Nights more. I love them. I just think they're beautiful. They're fantastic pieces of comedy, and there's a good amount of improv. But it just takes a very rare talent to do that. And McKay's like a real special talent, I think, comedic. Yeah. You know, I was, when Bill and Ted came out, the first one, I was seeing a lot of movies. I was seeing like 150 movies a year. And um, Bill and Ted was not on my radar to like it. <laughs> I thought it was another one of, you know, jive-ass comedies that I was going to kind of um, suffer through. And it has such a, I don't know if it's um, if it's the surreal quality of it or if it's the um, the affection for the characters. But I remember um, being so far out of the target audience yeah. and yet really loving it. It was a very goofy experience. Um, that's great. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, we, we just loved writing those guys. And so I think that that matters. And I think that given that our starting DNA comedically was uh, Blazing Saddles and, and Python in particular, we wanted it to feel like a Python we wanted that kind of craziness, that kind of almost sort of like, or I remember like, I loved, you know, Three Stooges when I was like, I still love Three Stooges, but oh, that, yeah. that sort of ramshackle quality of them, like they're not well made, they're not well, they're not perfectly, not at all. They're kind of crude, they just kind of bounce around, but they're hilarious and that's part of what makes them hilarious. And some, some of the best Marx Brothers, that's true too. They're not well-made movies. Like nobody would look at Animal Crackers and go, you know what, that's a perfectly made movie. It's not, but- Well, but yes. If you compare, if you compare Animal Crackers to the Stooges, it's Citizen Kane. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I mean, the Stooges were at their cleanest. They were the Sex Pistols. Yeah, <laughs> true. And that, but that's what's so great about it is how how kind of crude and primal it is. It's just like wow, that's raw comedy in a way. Yeah, I was just you know the new um, the new uh, Stooges, all the. Uh, new transfers, all the shorts are out again yeah. on uh, on Apple. And I picked those up and I've been going through them and also found on YouTube a um, collection of all the times they really got hurt. <laughs> like when, when, when Mo <laughs> broke three ribs and continues the scene. Oh, shit. <laughs> so it's great to see him with three broken ribs slapping his brother going in knucklehead and then kind of walking. Uh out of the door for like no reason in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the stooges also to me anyway, are funny because like just the bizarre psychodrama of these guys, like what the, what is the deal here? What is your guy? <laughs> Mo, what is your problem, man? Why are you all so got mad some, all the time? Something I'm a sucker for on Bill and Ted, on Wayne's world and on the stooges, you have, Characters who are completely outside of the law and love each other, you know, and I am a complete sucker for that. I mean, I think Penn and Teller career would give you a hint of that. Yes. But people who, um, people who are outside of society, yep. outside of reality, they don't really fit in, but they get along with each other very, very well. In their own way, yeah. Which with the Stooges is not—I don't think you would call it a healthy relationship, yeah. but it is a relationship. They somehow must 
love each other, to stick no. together, considering how much they on the surface seem to hate each other. Now, uh, why now for the, the newest Bill and Ted? Why wasn't that a franchise that kept turning them out? Uh, I don't think it made enough money to justify that. I mean, they're kind of cult movies. It was, we're not talking, you know. Really? The original one was not huge? Well, the original one, no, it wasn't huge. It was kind of like, it was, it was a, it was a kind of a cult success. And it did. Well, if, you could, if you could only have gotten paid the way musicians get paid now on iTunes. Yeah. Because I think we watch that every day. <laughs> I think, I think my friends and I uh, from grade school could have done, could do the movie by heart. <laughs> Uh, if you got paid the way musicians got paid for like just played listens on playlists, yeah, you would have got you would have crushed it. You God damn it, it, we don't, you know. <laughs> it did pretty good. The second one we got to make pretty quickly, but it didn't do that great. I mean, people didn't really like it that much, and it was kind of a weird sequel. You know, you don't typically like kill your main guys and and send them to hell. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. just sort of and people. A lot of people didn't like it, and and so that was it. And it just kind of laid there for about 15 years with no activity at all. I mean, like nothing. I would say between 1991 and 2007, it's just like inactive completely on every level. And then, like I said, and I must have just started talking about it a little bit. Like, what would these guys be like? What, what would it be like to deal with them at 40? It ends up being 50 because it's taken so long. And it just, it's, we started getting interested in it. And then we started. And then we had a conversation with Alex and Keanu, like, are you guys interested in this? And they, they, they were enough so that we kind of just started exploring it. And then it just took forever to get it <laughs> done because nobody wanted to do it. Nobody, nobody wanted to do it. I mean, we wrote it. We had a draft in 2011 and we, you know, triumphantly marched out to, uh, well, the one studio we could go to because the studio owned it. We wrote it even though we didn't own it, which is kind of a foolish thing to do. But, you know, we, <laughs> it wasn't ours. It wasn't our property. MGM could do what they wanted with it. Um, but we wrote it and we were very confident because we thought it was pretty good. And it just got shot down. And then uh, everywhere we took it, because they allowed us to take it other places, it got shot down for years and years and years and years. And years. So hence the 29 years. But then Keanu had a big resurgence. Yeah, that's a big... Keanu's taken off. Yeah, I, I think John Wick probably was the game yeah. changer. Here. I mean, how could it not be? Now, was uh, was was Keanu... Uh, I don't even remember. Was Keanu famous at Bill and Ted's? No, he was just... That was his first movie? No, it wasn't his first movie. He'd made a couple of other, like, little low-budget movies. But um, I, I remember him on the set kind of like, well, I think this is just going to be it. I'm going to make this movie and then I'm going to be done, you know, find some other line of work or something. <laughs> he, was, he was very self-deprecating. Um, no, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a big star at all. I mean, it was obvious he had something pretty unusual, but no, he wasn't a star. But he's supposed to be, I, I've never met Keanu, but he's supposed to be very sweet. And He's a, he's a, uh, people, I've been asked, is, is he like the nicest guy ever? Because that's, uh, that's the first time. I was like, no. He's not. At times, he's he's irritable. He's incredibly private. This guy is just so private. He can be very forbidding in his energy, but he's a good guy. I would say he's in in my years in the film business and the entertainment business. He's definitely one of the best guys I've met. He has good character. He's a good guy. Yeah, and he's very skilled. He's very skilled, and uh, that he can that he can play on you know John Wick and Ted 
back to back. I think it's at something because that's about as far, that's really, really far apart. Well, I hope that, I hope that, you know, like, like Abbott and Costello with their monster movies, we get to see a movie where Ted and John Wick meet. <laughs> Somebody in some interview he did, they tried to, they tried to get him to say who would win a fight between John Wick and Neo, and he just wouldn't go there. He's just like, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't fight. <laughs> well, you got to bring. I think Ted wins. Ted would. Ted would come up with some crazy <laughs> counterintuitive magical thinking thing that would leave them going, "Wait, what? Where are we? What? How did that happen?" So, now we have to get to the other character yeah. that you've that you've written yeah. the most for, which is God, right? Yeah, yeah. I've written a lot <laughs> for God. I have. I've written a lot for that guy. Yeah, <laughs> and you've created a character that is not as likable as Bill and Ted. <laughs> no. Insecure. Uh, not particularly clever. Nope. <laughs> None of the warmth. <laughs> You've written someone that we can now say is fairly presidential. I would say so, very much so, yes. <laughs> but I know uh, in, my, uh, in, my, in my life as an atheist and knowing a lot of atheists, that um, the atheists that I know, many of them are very well-versed in the Bible. But you are a whole other level. When you write the God books, which are so heavily, heavily referenced, yeah. uh, the one I was reading, um, it's the third one I was reading the other night. Uh, well, there's it? the story of God, the trouble with God, and then the new one's the Buddha story, which is a different thing. It's about the Buddha, but, you know, yeah. yeah. But the trouble with God, yeah. um, you bring in Scientology, yeah. Book of Mormon, yeah. and uh, like my friend Salman Rushdie, you also. You also bring in uh, Islam, yeah. which uh, not the safest thing, not <laughs> as safe as writing Bill and Ted. Oh, no. you you must you must be kind of hoping that that book does not become an international bestseller. <laughs> I guess that would be wise on my part. Yeah. <laughs> Do you read the Bible, the Book of Mormon, Dianetics, the Quran, and take notes and then come back to it? Yeah, exactly. Or are you are you carrying are you carrying this stuff in your head? Oh no! Oh god, no! I'm not, I don't have that brain. Uh, no, not like a little encyclopedia in my brain. All right, John fourteen three. No, I don't have any of it in my head. No, I I just I, I pick up the books and I and I take a pen and anytime I find something that strikes me as ludicrous, I mark it. And so by the end, these books are just marked up like crazy. Because I find so much that I find ludicrous. And then I so just... You're, you're writing in the Quran, sir? Yes, I am. Okay, well, that'll, that'll be added to your fat wall. Well, that's bad. Um, yeah, I think, I think you definitely... I don't know if there's any specific prohibition against it, but you know there probably is. I'm going to burn an extra long time for that, I guess. Well, yeah. What, I, what I'm really worried is that there will be a dagger putting your heart in broad daylight that has a note that says I'm next on it. <laughs> you know, like, uh, like Yan Hirsi Ali getting her message, uh, stabbed into the heart of, um, of, uh, Tio Van Gogh, right? Yeah. Well, uh, my early apologies if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, how did you, uh, the God books are so, 
so goddamn funny. I mean, insanely funny on every page. I was reading uh, last night the section where you're talking about the Quran having the best comebacks. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and what word? What word should be emphasized? Yeah. No, no, you're listening to the audio books, right? Do you read those, Chris, or who reads them? No, I read. Yeah. Uh, I was sorry then that I was reading instead of listening. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's um, they're great because they're such witless comebacks. You know, they're just so strident and kind of enraged and completely devoid of any wit or any real, you know, flair. They're just they're just um, they're just nasty and 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 mean. You know, and you manage to uh, mine the Book of Mormon, yeah. which I would have thought Trey and Matt had wrung dry. <laughs> Uh, the Book of Mormon. Because they've now made more money on the Book of Mormon than John Smith, haven't they? <laughs> I would say a lot, but you know, he got to be a prophet for a little yeah. bit. So I think that's the big perk of that line of work. You know, you get to be a prophet for a while. You get to be a, a, a spiritual leader. And sex. Yeah, that's yeah. a big one. Extra, I mean, extra wives. It, it really is. I mean, both uh, the Quran and the Book of Mormon, they, they both in different ways emphasize that. It's like, you know, gentlemen, there is a big reward for you here, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, which uh, I'm just going to sweeten the deal a little bit. And of course, these books are written just for men. I mean, well, the idea of like some woman reading. I mean, now, yeah. But I mean, back in the day, like uh, signing up for this. I've never understood... It, it, it absolutely amazes me that there are um, female, gay, and African-American Christians. Right. Uh, why would you want to join that club? <laughs> right. It's weird. I mean, I guess from a, just in a very broad sense, if, you, if it makes you feel better, to believe that the creator of the universe loves you, cares for you, is watching over you, and will you'll you know there's justice in the end, and you'll be treated fairly, and those who are mean will be treated, you know, get their just desserts, and and you'll see your loved. I mean, if if you if if it's that, I don't know how to argue with that. Really, you know, that's such an emotional starting point that yeah. it's like okay. Now, were you uh, were you raised atheist? Um, yes and no. I mean, not, I never set foot in a church or any house of worship until I was literally in my late twenties. I mean, the first time I ever set foot in a house of worship was a, a Catholic church, which just blew my mind because I couldn't believe how weird it was and how dense with all these meanings. And I thought it was really interesting and it really piqued my curiosity. On the other hand, my dad believes in every new age thing you can possibly think. Is that true? Man, you name it. You name it. You name a new age belief. That dude believed in it. So Rolfing. Well, probably. Rolfing? Okay. All right. Rolfing is, wait, you have to explain that to me because I don't have a specific. Really rough massage. <laughs> really rough massage out of the Esalen Institute. That new age to me implies more metaphysical. To me. And maybe Rolfing's metaphysical. It, it, metaphysical? Yeah, yeah. He was a, he was he had a very elaborate metaphysical belief system. He called it that's my belief system. That's it. It's my belief system. And 
And so I, I definitely, you know, astrology was everything and past lives oh, were boy. everything. And I mean, it, everything and, you know, telekinesis. Crystals? Any crystals? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh. he had like in our, you know, he bought, he thought he was going to live to be 257 years old at one point. And so he bought himself this pyramid. This is like the late 70s. So he bought himself like this <laughs> pyramid. Not online, because this is pre-online. Probably the Bodhi tree in Los Angeles, which he loved. <laughs> he loved the fucking Bodhi tree, man. I spent way more time in there than I would have liked. And uh, so he just lay in his little, you know, pyramid, I guess, because it was pyramid power. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. A lot of that kind of stuff. A lot of dogma. A lot of uh, certainty with regard to here's how my dad made a cd which would be probably impossible to get now but when he was old he made this cd called reality that's all it's called reality and 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 basically the whole thing is like for an hour and a half with no breaks you have to listen to the whole thing straight if you stop it you have to go back to the beginning it's like dad you're supposed to breaks in it so people can you know <laughs> not no tracks just one no track. tracks one long thing it's a diatribe it's just here's reality this is how reality is. And I was like, dad, you know, like, are you flat out saying that's reality? Yeah. <laughs> so, so not religious in the sense that I was raised Jewish or, or Catholic or Muslim or anything like that, but yes, steeped in uh, belief. Which is not uncommon in 70 sci-fi. Right. Not at all. No, I think, uh, you know, my dad. Yeah, right. It's not. I mean, that's where Hubbard comes from. Right. I mean, he is the same thing. Post-World War II, science fiction writer, big ideas, you know, sci-fi does. It can go that way. Yeah. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to end this show and start another one right away because we have so much more talking about God to do. And we'll bring Bill and Ted back into it, too. Uh, that was Penn Sunday School. Cha-cha-cha. You become naked. I don't want to uh, forget how wonderful it was for you to name the daughter of the George Carlin character, Kelly. That just thrilled me. That was great. That was a really nice moment. And she's also in it somewhere, right? And you know we love you. Hey everybody, Jason Ellis here from the Jason Ellis Show podcast, reminding you that my podcast, new episodes every Wednesday, downloadable, where all podcasts are available. Come see my friends, Michael and Kevin, as we talk to you about what's awesome, what sucks, fitness, fighting, parenting, life, spin kicks, LGBTQ community, how to defend yourself against the shark if it attacks you out of nowhere, and much, much more. So come join us. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, 
supporting the whole you. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.